There's several things we don't have in this neighborhood. We don't have hope and we don't have dignity. A person who's receiving Social Security is $700 a month. At the most, in the next 20 years, he may get $702 a month. The people in our homeless shelters, no hope. As far as they know, they're gonna die in their shelter. So that's why it's so important to give people hope and dignity. And in order to do that, you gotta give them an opportunity to be able to change their life, improve their conditions. First of all, don't bring no food down here. Please, we had enough food, we're, we're obese. We need love. We need you to come down and greet people. And I'll hook you up with someone. There's someone that they can just call their friend. It's not easy to help people on the tenderloin. It's, it's hard work, I'm telling you. Success means a lot of different things to people. I may bring a guy in here that, that I'm trying to groom up for a position at, at, at Safeway. And along the lines, he drops out the class after the third week. We may have gotten him to stop smoking crack for those three weeks. That's a success. And although he goes back out on the wagon and he relapses, just that is a major thing because they'll tell you, I've never been clean in my life there. I've never been clean in the last 20 years. So celebrate that. Next time, try to go four weeks. Success for me, um, staying clean, working a solid program, and being of service. Like, I'm a success every day when I help somebody. I'm so blessed that even in my brokenness, I get to help people. Everything I'm doing is like, like I say, I'm adjusting to it and it's gonna get, it's gonna come together. It's gonna come together. I represent formerly sleeping on that ground. I'm giving people the idea that you can get up out that ground and go back to an A game in a short matter of time. So whenever they think, man, I'll never be able to get out of this tent. Yes, you will. I did. I'll show you how. This sidewalk doesn't fit me anymore. On the concrete, there's no space to build a home. Give a man a fish, and you'll feed him for, uh, give a man, or teach a man to fish, and feed him for a, good, you guys know where we're at today. That is really uh, thematically a big part of where we're going to be uh, in week three of our 12 Neighbors series. Uh, that old saying is, we can't go back far enough to track where it was. Some say it was an old Chinese proverb. Uh, someone say Maimonides, who was a, a Jewish philosopher uh, from Spain in the, in, the, in the 11th century. They say, he said it. And some say it goes uh, even older than that. It's an indigenous adage that we, we can't even go far enough. The first English iteration of that was written by an author named Anna Isabel Thackeray Ritchie. And so, no matter where that comes from, and no matter how old that is, 
It's something that we can always understand, that we can always grasp. We can always look at that as a place where we can see the difference between relief and development. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, relief versus development. And let me talk about that for a moment. Uh, if, if, you are, if you're new, you're visiting, my name is Jamie, I'm the assistant pastor here. Uh, we're in this series called 12 Neighbors, where uh, one of our very own created this series where he went to different spots around the world and kind of investigated what it looks like to love our neighbor, not just in our own community and in our own contexts, uh, but a context for someone else. And so in this, uh, we, we hear from Code Tenderloin, which I'm going to talk about in a moment that you just watched a little clip of, and, and another um, organization called Jobs for Life. And so we, we're tackling this thought of giving relief to something or bringing development to something else. So relief is giving a man a fish, but development is teaching this man to fish. Now, relief is like temporary, immediate provision or aid to somebody in need. Okay, you got me? We need to know these concepts if we're going to understand God's word, what he has for us today. Relief is immediate, and, but temporary provision or aid for someone who's in need. Okay? Relief is like you walk down the street and you see a homeless man and you just happen to throw some change in his cup. That's relief. You know, there's a, there's a natural disaster that happens in Haiti, and we all watch the Red Cross benefit concert, and we get, maybe give our 50 bucks or our 20 bucks or our 100 bucks. That's relief. Or uh, maybe uh, it's as simple as uh, throwing food in a non-perishable food box. Okay, that is relief. We're giving relief to something. It's temporary. It's immediate. And then there's, and then there's development. Development is a slower, more ongoing process that seeks to help the more foundational needs of someone maybe who, uh, who has a need. Okay, development is a, is a slower pro- progress. It's something that takes a little bit more time. But here's the thing, and here's what I want to touch on today, is that relief seems to kind of be the church's default. Like sometimes we default to relief. Really, it's easier, it's simpler, and and it takes resources that we already have, right? You guys with me? Relief is just easier. Now, don't get me wrong. Please hear me when I say this. Relief is not a bad thing because there are homeless people who just need some change. There are food banks who just need a little bit of food. There are natural disasters that happen that we just need to give to. Last year, we as a church, we gave $72,000 to our city to build two microhomes for the homeless. Yes, that's relief. That's relief in a big way, and that's, that's important. That's huge. Congratulations. That's awesome. So, but when we put this in the context of the church, I want to take a really quick look at how the church has historically helped poverty, and the marginalized, okay? And so there's going to be an image that's going to pop up. And when you see that, you can see that some of the top few things that the American church, and I don't have like all the stats for the Canadian church, so we're just going to say the North American church. We've helped with food and clothing and housing, right? 
food banks, Habitat, Habitat for Humanity, you've got clothes in your closet that you don't wear anymore, so you'll just take it to the Salvation Army. Like, this is how we naturally respond. This is relief. This is easy. It's simple, right? It's just, it's our default. These are the ways that we, we help. And now, another organization that uh, if, you were, if you're in a 12 Neighbors group or if you've been coming to our uh, 12 Neighbor group nights, You'll see that Jobs for Life are, are an organization that really want to see the church flip this graph a little bit. And if we begin to tackle things like employment and, and tackle the things in someone's life that keeps them from the necessities of life, if we can concentrate on those things, then we'll see a huge turnaround in people's lives. And so that's kind of where I want to go. We, uh, we just saw a clip from an organization called Code Tenderloin. And what that is, is uh, the Tenderloin is a, a more poverty-stricken part of the tech district in San Francisco. And this guy named Del Seymour founded this organization. And what they do is they take the, the, uh, the ex-offender, the recently incarcerated. They take someone who has a criminal past, and what they do is that they train them and they teach them how to work within the tech world. And they give them these opportunities. And he, he said it himself, we don't need any more food. Please don't give us any more food. We're going to be obese, right? He says, what these people need, and I'm going to read this because I don't want to misquote him. He says, the things that we need in this neighborhood is hope and dignity. Don't bring us food. We got enough food. But to bring them hope and dignity is to give them an opportunity to improve their situation. He's referring to the amount of relief that has been given, but really what he's looking for is development of people, giving hope and dignity to people who have a name, who have a story. And I think that this is such a good opportunity for us as a church and for you as an individual to move away from just doing relief, just doing the easy stuff. Just doing the default stuff that just comes simple and natural to us. Being generous is good, but we want to move to a place of developing people. Amen? Amen. So I want to look at the overall narrative of the Bible for a moment, because I think that the overall narrative of the whole entire Bible really speaks to this concept quite a bit. Because we've got the Old Testament, and then we've got the New Testament. And the Old Testament... When someone messed up, when someone sinned, when someone was disobedient to God, what they had to do was take an animal and like sacrifice that animal on their behalf. It's called atonement. They would, they would sacrifice an animal to make up for their miscomings, for their sin. And sometimes the priest would even do this on behalf of the entire community. They, they would make multiple sacrifices in, in very uh, specific kinds of ways that we're trying to atone for the sin of the entire community. And so the, the Old Testament is filled with story after story after story of human failure, of human mess-ups, humans choosing to do wrong over being obedient to God. But those animal sacrifices, that relief, was not enough. The relief was just killing more and more of these animals, all the chicken wings and all the bacon is just going down the drain because they just keep killing these animals to try to make up 
for all of this. And then Jesus enters the story. Jesus enters the story. And through his perfect, sinless life, through his ministry and his death and his resurrection, he shows us that the relief that hasn't worked, that the animal side, it just doesn't seem to be doing its job. And he steps into the story. And he becomes development. He shows us what it means to be in community. He shows us what it means to do life together. And through his work, his sacrificial, sacrificial work on the cross as the pure, spotless lamb, he said, okay, one more. One more sacrifice. That's all it's going to take. And so the laws and the rules and the regulations of the Old Testament were not enough to fulfill what only Jesus could And so he introduces holiness as this ongoing change in our life. That's development. So he becomes the sacrifice. Um, The author in Hebrews puts it like this in chapter 10. He says, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sin. Right? This is immediate, temporary aid, provision. This is relief. It doesn't fix the foundational problem of sin. Verse 12, but our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. This is Jesus helping the larger foundational problem of sin. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand, and there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made footstool under his feet, for by that one Offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so, for he says, This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put a new law in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he says, I will never again remember. Somebody say amen. I will never again remember their sin and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, There is no need to offer any more sacrifices. The law offers relief, and Jesus offers resolution. The law offered relief. Jesus offers development. And so that's kind of like the overall biblical narrative of the gospel, of the word of God. I want you to open your Bible to 2 Samuel 9, if you've got your Bible or if it's on your phone or whatever. Open to 2 Samuel 9. I want to look at maybe a more practical story that might take a look at this theme of relief and development of, of temporary and immediate aid versus an ongoing process of holiness and change and, and, and trying to dig deep into the foundational problems in our lives. And so we're going to look at the story of David for a moment. And if you are, uh, maybe if you're new, you're visiting, maybe you're unfamiliar with who David was. Uh, David was a very central character in the Old Testament. And in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, we see kind of his story into kingship. He, as a young boy, was anointed as king, but it took a while for him to be appointed as king. And so during, this, during his years, during this anointing, he began to serve under King Saul. Saul was the the king that was ahead of him. He began to serve under King Saul. He became best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. David became a great warrior, and he gained popularity and trust with the Israelite people. All the while, King Saul begins to get jealous. 
He even begins to uh, throw a few spears at David, try to kill him a few times. He chases him out of town just so that he can go and try to hunt him down. So it's not the greatest friendship. Like, they don't have the greatest of relationships. It's a little rocky at this point. And so later on, of course, um, Saul dies in battle, along with most of his other capable heirs. His son Jonathan also dies in this war. And then when that happened, David becomes king. And this is where 2 Samuel 9 comes in. As king, as one of his very, as the new king, one of his first duties is this. This is 2 Samuel 9. And David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? For Jonathan's sake. Now, there's something very interesting about this. Because David was, like I said, Jonathan's like best friend. They were as close as brothers. He's like, I know what Jonathan would want me to do is treat others with kindness. And so that's what I'm going to do. And what's interesting is, especially in the Middle East, when a new dynasty would take over as king, when they would take over the kingdom, uh, the new king would go out and try to destroy all the living heirs. They would go out and try to destroy any sons that might regain power later or, or try and, and come and take back the throne for their family's sake. This was normal practice and very almost expected of David in his new role. But that is not how he decides to act. He says, hmm, how can I show these people kindness? Verse 2, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. And the king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? And Ziba answered this, and this is actually quite important how this is written specifically. There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Now what's unique about this verse is that Ziba doesn't even call him by his name. He refers to him by his disability. I'm so thankful for a God that does not refer to me by my, uh, my disabilities. I'm so thankful for a God who does not refer to me by my mess-ups and my mistakes and my past sin. He refers to me by my name. And so he's referring to a boy named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is indeed lame in both his feet. Uh, when Saul and Jonathan in their very final battle, when it comes time for them to die in battle, and they do, Mephibosheth, who is at this point in 2 Samuel 4, I believe, he was five years old, and his nurse, his caretaker, um, as soon as she hears that Saul and Jonathan have died in battle, she picks up Mephibosheth and basically, in a panic, runs away with him in her arms. And in this, she actually drops him and uh, breaks both of his feet and becomes disabled in his feet. And this is why he is referred to as lame in both feet. Something happens in the growth and the development of his legs, and so he's not able to walk. So we go to verse 4. Where is he, the king answered, or the king asked. And Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. And so King David 
had, had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness. Like he thought he was walking into his execution. Not even walking, he was carried in to his execution. He says, no, 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 no. I'm going to show you kindness. So he doesn't know what's going on. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father. I will restore to you all of the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. And so here's a great example of relief, right? This young man, almost his entire family has been decimated in battle. And he is lame in both feet. At this point, because he has no family to care for him, he is probably a little bit poor. He's marginalized because of his feet. He is set aside, and he is called into the kingdom by name. And, says, and David says, I want to show you kindness. And what does he do? He restores all of the land that was given to him by his grandfather when he was king. So this is interesting because... He's giving him a means to live. He's giving him land to work and to till. He's giving him land that will make him money and give him food and provide for him. He's giving him something that provides relief for Mephibosheth's life. And this is how Mephibosheth responds. Bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? In other words, he's saying, why? What good is all of this land? What good is having land to work and crops to have if I can't physically do the work? I can't do the manual labor. So this in turn, like, is this a joke? Are you making fun of me? Are you mocking me? I can't, I can't do anything with this land that you've given me. It, it's so nice of you to offer, but what is it that I can do with this? David responds in verse 9. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given Mephibosheth everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring him in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And so not only is he giving him the land, but he's giving him the people to work the land for him. He's continuing to show kindness. Not only will I give you a way to make wage and a way to make a living, but I will give you the people to help you work the land because I know that you might not be physically able to do so. And then he says this. Don't miss this, because sometimes it's so easy for us to think about the resources. Sometimes it's so easy for us to think about the easy and the simple ways to give and be generous. Sometimes it's so easy for us to just give of whatever it is that we have to someone and then be done with it. But here's something that's so significant in this passage, and I do not want you to miss it. He says, and Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now think, that's a, that's a nice, that's fun. Get to eat at the table of the king. But there's something so significant about this one line. Because think about a table for a moment. Think about when you sit down 
with your family or your friends to have a meal. When someone sits at a table and you have the plates in front of you and it is set and it is ready to go, what can you see? You see everything from the torso up. So David in this moment is saying, you will always have a seat at my table. Why? Because I can't see your feet. I can't see anything under the table. Because when you sit with me at my table, I restore to you all hope and dignity that you have as a human being. When we sit at the table together, everything else is moot. When you sit with me at the table, Mephibosheth, your, your disability matters no longer. We are equal. When you sit at the table, nobody will see what you think is holding you back. We are equal. We are the same. And he's, he begins to bring hope and dignity. In verse 11, and Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And get this, I love this line because I think this wraps up this story. And Mephibosheth, named first, lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. But yeah, he was also lame in both feet. All of a sudden, the name comes first, and the disability comes second. So Mephibosheth is receiving this unmerited mercy from David. He had every right every responsibility as the new king to wipe out the rest of Saul's family, to, to have, have you know, all the murders happen and completely wipe that dynasty off the face of the planet so that they never regain control again. He had every right to do that, but instead of bringing more destruction and strife to their family and their, those relationships, he decides to build bridges and mend relationships and show kindness and have, in a lot of ways, his enemy sit at the table with him. And I believe that Jesus did the same thing for us, his unmerited mercy. This is what it says in Romans 5. And there's some emphasis that I added here, but while we were enemies of God because of sin, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son and are saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Relief from sin wasn't good enough for Jesus. But developing a permanent solution to sin was what he wanted to bring for us. And because of the love of Jesus, because he saw that the animal sacrifices weren't working, the relief that God was trying to provide through us, for us through, through the, the, the priests and through these sacrifices, that that relief wasn't working. It, 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 it was helpful for a time, but not for all time. And so then Jesus steps in. And with unmerited mercy becomes the sacrifice for each one of us on the cross. Giving us and showing us what it means to be community. What it means to, to, to have a relationship with one another. To help one another spur one, and on, one another on in holiness. To give each other hope and dignity. And to seek help for those foundational problems in our neighbor's lives. That's what Christ did. The foundational problem of sin was completely wiped away because of what Jesus did on the cross. And here's the thing is that he's wanting us to do the same thing for one another. And so this past week, if you've been in any of our groups, uh, the kind of the application for this has talked a little bit about 
helping in need, but not just on the relief side of things. But how can we be people, individuals, who are really getting to those foundational problems of the, the people who have poverty and the marginalized? Like, how can we meet, and how can we at least get a, a point of view of those foundational problems that they can't get out of, that chronic homeless, homelessness, right? That, that, that need to continue to come back and back and back to your addictions. Like, what are those foundational things? And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about for a moment about some of the organizations or the charities that maybe you give to. Uh, think about, you know, the, uh, just even apart from church for a moment, think about those, those charities and organizations, organizations that you give to, whether it's the food bank or maybe it's, um, I don't know, maybe it's compassion. Like, continue to give to those kids, right? Like, don't get me wrong. Continue to give to these places. But what would it mean if you were to dig a little bit deeper and hear the story of some of those organizations and those, those charities, those places, those nonprofits that are trying to help others in our community. What if you just went a little bit further, beyond the relief, beyond how you're helping with your resources, but began to go and hear stories and see their process of how they work, get involved on a deeper and more foundational level, go and visit, go and observe and meet people, Learn the process, hear their stories. This is the kind of community that brings us from a place of merely relief to the developmental problems that help people get out of their situations. Uh, and I want to give an example for a moment. For a month or more, we've been talking a little bit about Greener Village. And, I, you know, if I ask you to go and, like, hey, go track down some organization or nonprofit or business that is helping others... 5% of you might do that. Like, a, f- a few of you may actually go and take that challenge. But I, I kind of felt like if I don't give you a very tangible example of how we as a church are trying to get others to do that, I thought that maybe even if we make, move that to 10% or 50%, I think that we're, that's a good thing. Continue to do relief. But where does our church go and how do we affect the lives of people if we move to a place of development? And so we've had a box in our foyer since I've been here all seven or eight years that you guys very generously give to, that, that food box. And if you've got non-perishables, if you've got stuff that has been sitting in your cupboard for how, however long, that you know you're not going to get to, you can put it in there, and that's helpful, okay? Don't get me wrong. But it's also relief, and it's temporary. And it's not, it's just immediate. But what if you are to go visit Greener Village and get a sense of the impact that they're doing for our community. What if you were to sign up for one of our two-and-a-half-hour shifts where you may think that you're just kind of organizing donated clothes and food, but what you're actually doing is you begin to meet the people behind the scenes of the heartbeat of those places. You begin to see and get a... a a feel for the stories that make up the people who are making a difference. You get to, to see the process of how this is actually serving our community. That's development. That's just getting to know people and stories and needs and foundational things that we as a church can help. And so um, our, our service leader is going to explain how you can do that in a moment. I think there's going to be somebody with an iPad out in the foyer in a few minutes. But here's what I want you to understand 
is that because of what Christ did for us on the cross, by digging deep and bringing resolution to the foundational problem of sin in our lives, he wants us to try and do the same for people by looking at their lives, looking at, at their issues and trying to reach the foundational issues that are keeping them in a place of not success, right? Uh, of, of continued poverty or chronic homelessness or addictions that keep coming up and up. Like Jesus did it for us. So we must do it for our neighbor. We must do it for the, the poverty that we see and the marginalized in our city that we see. Like, I'm not trying to boost some new ministry, right? Like, I'm not just trying to get a bunch of names on a piece of paper. We're trying to just, if anything, get you to grasp the concept of moving beyond just your resources and what you give to these places, but giving more of yourself and meeting people, sitting at a table, and understanding the processes of it. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you so much for what you've done for us as people. God, I'm so thankful that we are not in the process of, of seeing animals continue to be sacrificed for my mistakes. I thank you so much that while the law brought relief, that your life brought resolution. God, may we understand the depth of the love that you have for each one of us. And Jesus, that you would continue to work in us, to change us, to transform us that you would do a good work in each one of us, God. Change our hearts so that we would love our neighbor more and better. And it's the name of Jesus Christ. We all agreed and said, amen.